Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I am Pat Rulo. We specialize in author interviews, audiobook and podcast production, as well as the prestigious Firebird Book Awards. We also feature our fun and short podcast that allows authors to record their own writing tip to share on our very own Boom Bang Oh My Gosh Wow podcast, which you will find right along with the rest of our offerings at speakuptalkradio.com. Right now, I am very excited to share a recent Firebird Book Award winning author with you. He is James S. Bostwick, and his winning book is titled Acts of Omission. Jim is a nationally recognized trial lawyer for over 40 years of experience, representing catastrophically injured people throughout the country. In this first novel, he uses his vast experience to provide a rare glimpse into the world of civil trial lawyers, what motivates them, the enormous risks they take, and the choices that define them professionally and personally. Jim is an invited member of the Inner Circle of Advocates, limited to the top 100 plaintiffs' trial lawyers in the United States, and is a past president of the International Academy of Trial Lawyers, limited to the top 500 plaintiff and defense trial lawyers in the United States. He has received many honors and awards for his work as a civil plaintiff's trial lawyer. He has obtained several record results for his clients over the years, including the largest medical malpractice jury verdict in U.S. history. He is the father of five. He practices law with his son and with his law partner of over 20 years. His office is in the San Francisco Bay Area where he lives with his wife and their two dogs. And I have a special interest in this topic, so I'm excited to talk. Welcome to the network, Jim. Well, thank you. Uh, Very nice to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Me too, absolutely. And congratulations on the book win. Well, thank you. Thank you. I was very pleased by that. (laughs) And it's nice to actually have a critic say they like it. I understand. Uh, it's, it's excellent. All righty. The largest medical malpractice jury verdict in U.S. history. That's huge. It was. It was quite a saga. It was uh, back in the 70s, um, and it, I represented a little, uh, little girl who became a quadriplegic when she was 13 uh, from from treatment for cancer. Um, but they were trying a new thing called radiation therapy. And unfortunately, they overlapped the fields and burned her spinal cord. Oh. And, yeah, it was very sad. We tried the case. She was 18. And a beautiful, very smart young woman with her family. Her father had abandoned the family, and her mother had MS, and her brother had gone off. She was living by herself in a nursing home since she was 13. Um very, very sad, uh, a wonderful young woman, um, and a difficult case. They really didn't want to offer any money. They thought that it was a, a case that couldn't possibly be won. And uh, and actually, because it's such a new field, I had to I had to find an expert in uh, in radiation oncology and treating uh, can- uh, cancer with radiation. And it was a very small field. There were only maybe two hundred super experts on that in the world. And I think I talked to all of them. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I couldn't find anybody. I finally found a guy in England uh, named Frank Ellis, who's the grandfather of radiation oncology, to come over and testify. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he was marvelous, although when he got there the night before, he, 
he he was non-compass. It was so jet lagged. I was really scared to death. Oh wow! But it was yeah, it was quite a it, it was quite a case and uh, had such a remarkable result. Happily, that the judge even decided for our benefit that he would cut it or the appellate court would. Wow. It was on Walter Cronkite and. and I got sent newspaper articles from Germany, from Russia, from China, from all over the world with a picture of that young woman and myself on the front and oh. saying what a massive result it was. It was it was fun. Do you know how she's doing now? Ironically, she's deceased. She died of of iatrogenic causes. She went into an ER for something that they should have been able to pick up and they didn't and she died. Wow. Oh. Yeah, isn't that ironic? She died of medical malpractice. Oh my gosh! It was a, a, a metabolic disorder that is common in quadriplegics, and uh, she was having symptoms from it. They didn't do the lab work that they should have done. Oh, it could e- very easily correct it. Mm-hmm. Wasn't corrected, and she had a, a cardiac arrhythmia and died. I'm sorry. That's that's wow. That's a story. I'm sorry. Yep. Yeah, it was it was very sad, um, but uh, you know the uh, the case was a very interesting case, and, and you know kind of was able to put my partners and I on the map mm-hmm. back in the day. Absolutely, are you still practicing? I am, hundred and fifty percent. It yeah. seems like I I think I'm working harder than I ever have, <laughs> which is strange with COVID and everything. I haven't been in the office in two years. Uh, I'm sitting right now in my little downstairs office. And I'm working from home, and I'm able to do my cases, and I'm able to make court appearances on Zoom. Mm-hmm. I'm getting ready to go try a case in Hawaii, which we'll all do in person. Um, but it's it's uh, kind of amazing what what we've been able to do with COVID and yep. keep things going. Keep it moving, um, um, Jim. Have you found an uptick in? medical malpractice cases during these last two years where everything is just hyper-stressed? Well, yes and no. I would say that the the patients are hyper-stressed, <clears throat> the doctors and nurses and hospital systems are hyper-stressed, <clears throat> and so for that reason, what we do see a lot of mistakes. Uh, on the other hand, Mostly they're forgivable mistakes, mm-hmm. and most of the things that people call us about are things that we just say, look, at this is a product of the time, Yes. and it, you can't really uh, ask that they perform beyond their capabilities mm-hmm. And uh, when, the, when the system is distressed. Right. So, so I, 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 do we see some you know, legitimate cases, yes, where mistakes are made that never should have been made? Of course. But I wouldn't actually say, although we get more calls and more people are upset, I wouldn't actually say there's been an uptick. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, I've, I've That's, been... of course, just an individual perspective, but I really don't think so. No. Excellent. All right. Well, let's talk about your book, Acts of Omission. What We're going to get a peek into the storyline first, but what made you decide to write this book? Because I'm sure that took quite a while just to stop what you're doing as a practicing attorney and put all this on paper. Why did you decide to share this particular story? Well, I'm, you know, I love to read. Uh, I've been a voracious reader since I was a little kid. I used to go down to the, you know, to the library and get seven books and bring them home and, 
read them all in a week and go back and get seven more. Uh, of course, I lived in a place where it was 125 in the shade, so you really wanted to be inside reading, not outside. Um, and I, I've always loved reading, but and I love legal thrillers. I love uh, things about the law, but it was kind of frustrating to me that they were always criminal cases, which is, of course, fascinating, and, uh, you know, for everyone. But rarely were they about civil uh, issues. There are lots of, of lawyers out there trying civil cases that are, you know, very fraught, very concerning, and you know, very high risk, and uh, lots of, you know, terrible injuries. Um, and so I used to complain about that, and my wife said, well, stop complaining and just write your own. <laughs> um, and I said, well, I'm not a writer. And she said, well, no, I signed us up. Tied us up for a class to learn how to write your first novel. Uh, so we did. I had a marvelous uh, professor, and we got going on the thing, and, uh, you know, it was very inspiring. Uh, we all start, you know, those of us that kept going met for another year uh, in her place or at our place or somebody's house, and we would go over chapters we'd written and encourage each other, and that helped a lot. Mm-hmm. So that got me going, but that was actually 20, almost 30 years ago. Our daughter was a baby. We had to, you know, put her in bed early, and I had the whole evening. I couldn't, we couldn't go anywhere, so I started writing in the evening. And then when our second daughter was born, she didn't go to bed so easily, so the, the writing went out the window. <laughs> um, and, and it just sat there. And ten years ago, I said, what's the matter with you? You've written two-thirds of a novel. Why don't you finish it? So I did. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to tell a story about what, civil lawyers who go through uh, the kinds of things that they have to worry about and think about, um, the kinds of ethical dilemmas they get in, um, uh, and, you know, what what makes a, a civil lawsuit tick in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. And I wanted it to be authentic, because so much that you see on TV and in the movies and even read in the books is just not real. It's not what really happens in the courtroom. Mm-hmm not what really is going on between clients and their lawyers and so I I wanted it to be authentic right with that maybe give us a peek into the storyline it's actually loosely based on a a trial I had back in the 80s um, when as a young lawyer I foolishly took on a case against probably the most famous lawyer in the country at the time Uh, you're probably too young to even know who this is, but his name was Melvin Belli. And he was uh, internationally known. I mean, everybody knew him. He, uh, you know, when they had a huge um, disaster in India, he would be there and everybody in India would hire him to represent them. And when Jack Ruby shot uh, Oswald, uh, he, he, re- he represented Jack Ruby. He was very famous for both civil and criminal work, and uh, and a and a San Francisco icon. And here I was practicing law in San Francisco, and he was the, the media loved him, the bar loved him, huh. uh, the public loved him, and, and and little old me took him on and decided to sue him for legal malpractice. So that's it was, and it was a, it was kind of an interesting. Uh, trial, an interesting case, the way it developed. And, of course, this 
is a very highly fictionalized version of that. Mm -hmm. A lot of the things that in the book that happened in, didn't happen in the case, uh, of course. Uh, but you got to got to make it fun and interesting. But um, the guts of it uh, is is a, is an actual trial, mm -hmm. and a lot of the witnesses and people in it were real people. Wow. And uh, it was it became a very famous. Uh, trial and it, it got a lot of national publicity and so So I, I thought it would be fun to write about because there again, here's a young person. He was 16 when he got injured. He was paralyzed, uh, and now he's you know almost 20, and and we were going to trial. But the 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 unfortunately, when Bell I took the case, he handed it to a young lawyer, and they never figured out that when he got. This young man got to the hospital. He could move his arms and legs. He lost his ability to move his arms and legs while in the hospital. Mm -hmm. It was medical malpractice, but the statute had run by then. Mm. So then I have to sue the lawyer for missing the case. And so it's, but you have to prove the underlying case. You have to prove the legal mal, I can't practice case and the medical malpractice mm -hmm. case. Mm -hmm. It took about three years, and the trial was uh, about seven to eight weeks mm -hmm. in San Francisco Superior Court. It got you know lots of national news and everything because it was a, not not. I mean, we got a, we got a big verdict, but it was mostly because he's so famous. It was in Newsweek and then Time Magazine and you know and all the publications and all the news, Walter Cronkite and so on. Yep. Yep. I bet it was fun to create the characters for this. You could pull from people you know and then exaggerate and kind of play with that. Exactly. It's fun. They're, they're, some of the characters are extremely real. They, they are so interesting. They, they didn't need any exaggeration. <laughs> they were fascinating themselves. <laughs> and some of them, it was just you made them hybrids of different kinds of people and a little bit of this person, a little bit of that person. And that's what's so fun about the process of writing, uh, what I learned, uh, since it was my first novel, I learned that, you know, these characters start developing a life of their own. Mm -hmm. They really do. And they start doing things you never imagined. I don't write from an outline, you know, I just write. And so they started doing things that surprised me, and that I never thought would, would happen at all. I'm always so fascinated by that thought that here you are the author you are creating these characters and then they take off and do things on their own and surprise you that just seems fantastical to me actually i know i i had never really understood that that can happen and when i found it happening i was fascinated by it <laughs> because you know you think that you must have it in your head they're they're your creations right well, no, they aren't really they're they become their own people I think when they develop that life of their own, uh, this is just my opinion, but that's when they become real to the reader. Yes. I think that's when the reader kind of becomes fascinated with that by that character because they're not just a made-up person or just somebody who the, the author knows and they're just trying to describe them. They, they are, they're now flesh and blood. You know, they're, they're a person doing real things. Mm-hmm. Sometimes crazy things, and sometimes things that nobody would expect. <laughs> I agree with you. I think that's the point, the turning point, the tipping point, when they do become real, and that's when they can connect with the reader. I think so. Mm -hmm. I think so. Yep. Uh, I think that's when you start relating to the reader. Too. Right, right. Uh, 
Yeah, and uh, and and also because that's happening, you know, the reader is able to kind of they're able to figure out themselves why these things are happening because the author doesn't even know. So now it's in, now the reader can figure it out. <laughs> it's a mystery to everyone, right? <laughs> Right. <laughs> I love that. You know, I was thinking that your work as a trial attorney, I was wondering if, if it was different or similar to that of being an author. I'm, I'm imagining that there are a lot of similarities. Well, there are the huge similarity. The, huge, the, the thing that is very, very similar in both is that a good trial lawyer... Uh, like any good writer is a good storyteller. Mm-hmm. And if if a trial lawyer doesn't develop a story, doesn't get the jury interested, the judge interested, even when you're writing a motion, you have to write, tell a story, and you, you have to get the judge interested. And, uh, and especially in trial, uh, that's critical. Uh, and so... And that's, of course, what we're doing when we write a, a novel. And so in that sense, they're very, very similar. And now, of course, they're different in the sense that this is, you know, this isn't nonfiction. And I can, I can, I can have the judge do right. something that, you know, is, is a little, sounds a little crazy, although nothing, and the judge did do a couple crazy things in that. But it, it, everything that happened in that book has happened to me in a courtroom. Interesting. Uh, not all, not all in that case. But, right. Uh, they're all things that really do happen, mm-hmm. and uh, they're all situations that lawyers face. You know, I, I wanted people to get a sense of, you know, the, the fact is is that the civil trial lawyer. There's a stereotype, yes. the ambulance chaser, for example, and it, you know everybody jokes about that. And even lawyers joke about it, but it's not funny because there 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 are people like that out there, but 99 percent of the lawyers out there are extremely dedicated, very hardworking, and and they're they're crusaders. Mm-hmm. They're real, you know. They're they're uh, people that. Um, are sometimes run more by their heart than their mind. And that's a danger when you're a trial lawyer, because if you let your emotions override your objectivity, that can be very dangerous because you may lead yourself and, and the, and the client into a situation that is going to be bad for mm-hmm. both of you. I can understand how difficult it must be to, to walk that line and, and uh, keep your wits about you. Oh, it is. It's extremely difficult um, because you you're a crusader at heart. Mm-hmm. But any lawyer that does what we do will tell you that case selection is the most important thing you can do. You yeah. have to be very objective and cold blooded about it. You can't take on something that is highly unlikely to win because right. number one, you're going to spend tons and tons of time, and you don't get compensated unless you win. Right, and. Most of the clients have been hurt so badly that the lawyers have to front all the costs, and that can be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And many, many lawyers have gone bankrupt, um, you know, putting too much into a case that really they should have never taken to start with. Right. And they lose perspective. Yeah. They lose uh, their objectivity. And 
And and then there's there's also these other very dangerous things that come into play that we, we as lawyers face every day, and which is you have bills to pay, you have you know uh, people that work for you, and you payroll, and you have rent to pay, and you families, and 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 then you have the potential pot at the end of the rainbow in the case, and then somebody offers half a pot, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, now suddenly there's half a pot is sitting on the table, and you have all kinds of difficult issues you have to think about and go through that are very difficult ethically, uh, because you cannot be uh, making your decision at all based on your own economic needs. Mm-hmm. I mean, you may be dying economically, but you cannot ba- make it based on that. Um, and and on the other hand. If you think that really, you know, really, I'm, I'm putting all that aside, you have to also be very, very objective with the client because the client needs to understand that although you think it's probably a good case and you think that you're probably going to win, nobody knows for sure. Right. Anything can happen in trial, and they need to understand the risks if there's a significant amount of money offered. Mm-hmm. And that that the tension there between those various issues is quite difficult. Uh, and the lawyers face it every day. Uh, it's, uh, so I, I wanted to write a little bit about that, too. Yeah, you say that you wanted to provide a rare glimpse into the world of civil trial lawyers, what motivates them and the enormous risks they take. And let's talk about what motivates. So what motivates you to do this? Oh, there's intellectual challenge. You know, I'm a competitive person. There's all of those things. I love medicine. So that's fascinating to me. Every case, I learn more and new things about medicine. Mm-hmm. My father was a doctor. My mother was a nurse. I mean, I love that. I was pre-med. I mean, I love medicine. I don't approach it from a hate. I, I approach it from a love standpoint. But ultimately, why I do it is because we have the opportunity to just make a huge difference in people's lives. Uh, and we may not. We can't fix them. You know, we can't usually make them better, uh, but we can give them some financial security. We can help the family whose you know, mother and father are, you know, at odds and thinking about divorce because they have a, a baby that was brain injured at birth and they have to take care of 24-7. They're up all night. They, they're, they're exhausted. Uh, and they're facing a lifetime of this. Maybe we can actually get them some help in their home. Maybe we can get some therapies for that little person. Maybe we can get them, you know, the things that the, the system provides some of it, but not, not nearly enough. Uh, our safety nets are not adequate, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I have represented a young woman who was uh, an Olympic athlete, and then she lost both her arms and legs. And then she still competes in the Paralympics with no arms and legs, a swimmer. She's an amazing young woman. But I was able to get her the best prosthetics and 24-hour help in the homes so that her, you know, her significant other didn't have to be her attendant, could actually be her lover and her friend and her, uh, and eventually her husband. Right. Uh, they have a house. I mean, it, it's. I could make a difference in her life. I couldn't give her her legs and arms back, but I could, you know, make a difference in her life. 
that kind of thing is an extremely powerful motivator. It is, Jim. But that's the very thing that can that that's that crusader personality. That that's the thing you gotta be very careful mm-hmm. about and not go out on, you know, and not take on something that is not gonna go anywhere for them or you. Right. Give them false hope. That's a danger. Do you find on the other side of it, on the healthcare hospital side, that going through something like this type of litigation, does that at all help healthcare to improve? Does it bring perhaps the lack of safety protocols and procedures to light? Do things change for the better because of a lawsuit? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Not in any, you know, I don't usually encourage my people to think that your lawsuit alone is going to change the entire system because it usually won't. But incrementally, it does. Okay. And with the things that I've seen change over the years, when I started practice, we had tons and tons. We had all kinds of anesthesia disasters mm-hmm. uh, because they didn't have the, the right kind of equipment. Mm-hmm. Now they have things like entitled CO2. They have computer records. They keep a, a real-time um, they know exactly what's going on with the vitals. They're not marking them down. They don't get distracted. I think they still get distracted, but they have, you know, warning signs. Sure. Fetal monitoring in birth injury cases has, has gotten much more sophisticated. It's not perfect. Uh, and, and it, you know, it has false positives and false negatives, but it helps so much. That has made such a difference. And there are, there are all kinds of things that are done where they, they stop surgeries and they do a, a double check to be sure that, you know, are we going to, do we know which patient this is? Are we going to take off the correct leg? Right. And those things are very important. Uh, and, and once in a while you go, oh my God, I'm sure glad we did that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like to think it's fear of losses because uh, that's such a negative way to look at it. Yes. I think it's more likely that all these doctors and nurses out there, they all want to do well. They don't want to harm it. Right. And and they need the tools. And this inspires them and their, their insurance carriers and their risk managers to push for more safeguards. That helps immensely. Different world now than it was when I started. The thing is, though, you're in it as it's evolving. So it's not like you're shocked by what's happened just because you're part of the evolution as well. Yes, I'm wondering about the feedback from your book, from co-attorneys, clients. What have you heard? Oh, it's been great. It's really been great. Actually, there's several law schools that are made it recommended reading uh, because it is very authentic. Uh, many lawyers have called me from around the country that are, you know, long-time, you know, very experienced trial lawyers, and they say it's the, it's the first one we've seen. Thank God there's one that's actually out there that is really like it is, says it like it like what happens in the courtroom, like what happens with the clients, and they love it. Uh, it, it got nominated, you know, for the Harper Lee uh, Legal Fiction Award uh, for 2020, and and so that you know that was a, and it was actually nominated by the the law school that sponsors the award. Uh, That's great. So that was that has been good to see, and, and, but also people have they they like the story. They they. They enjoy the story. They are, you know, the big problem now is that my wife and everyone else wants me to write the next one. That was my next and question. I, what's next, Jim? What's <laughs> next? <laughs> uh, right. But actually, I've been kind of spending more time on the 
because it's you know it's 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 in the works to be a movie. Uh, the the rights were purchased for a movie, and there's just uh, the famous movie producer and a movie screenwriter that are working on it. You know, the trouble is to make it a two-hour movie, you have to change so much. Mm -hmm. And so I think they've maybe decided to do stream, make it a streaming. Oh. And it would it would set up very well as about a six-episode streaming. Oh wow. Uh, installation, and I think that's where they're going now. Uh, so I think they're going to revise the screenplay, which would be good. Oh my, that's so but exciting! I helped help them with that. Yeah, it's really it's it's fun. Oh my gosh, keep us posted on that, please. Yeah, and actually, a fun thing happened. The screenwriter <laughs> who uh, teaches at Chapman University in screenwriting and was teaching a master's class. Uh, and he decided that he wanted to, he didn't want to be paid. He wanted to do it on spec, uh, which is, was a compliment. Um, and he uh, had a young woman in his class that, that he had gotten to know uh, who was quadriplegic. And he called her and he said, you know, I'd really like you to look at this book. It's written by a San Francisco lawyer. It's a novel, and it involves someone who's a quadriplegic. And, uh, you know, would you be willing to take a look at it and maybe even work with me on the screenplay? And she says, yes, but what's the name of the lawyer? And he, he said, Jim Bostrick. And she said, that was my lawyer. Oh. He got, he got me several million dollars. Oh. Yeah. Isn't that a small world thing? <gasps> Unreal. So well, it was obviously yeah, meant, I, meant to be, right? Meant to be. Oh. Yeah. Small world, not the big thing. I love that. Exactly. Oh, thank you for this conversation today. I want to make sure we're not missing anything you wanted to talk about. Not really. It's just been a wonderful process, and I, I, I'm actually quite anxious to get back at it because uh, I, I want to find out what happens to these people. Because, mm -hmm. uh, of course, uh, as I told you, I have no idea. Right, right. <laughs> they just get a life of their own, and they go. <laughs> and So uh, I'd like to do that, but I'm I've got to get uh, I got to get a few cases tried first and uh, get that screenplay going. Then you get get then back. We're there. All righty. Well, then why don't you share any contact information where folks can find out more about you, purchase your books, whatever wherever you want to take us. Okay. Well, it, the the book is is on Amazon. Uh, it's in Kindle and paperback. Um, Heartbound was the first edition was sold out long ago, and it's on Audible. And actually, the Audible has almost over nine hundred reviews mostly four and five star. Uh, Roger Wayne is the uh, reader, and he it did a fabulous job. He did voices and everything. He, did, he was marvelous, and people love the Audible. So if, if you're a person that likes the Audible, that's a fun thing to do, too. I'd never, I'd only listen to one Audible book ever, and that's mine. And I, it was a whole different experience to listen to it in Audible. It is, isn't it? And then, 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 yes, it is. Yes, it is. And he did a marvelous job. It, it can be uh, obtained there, and most of the bookstores have it. Barnes and Noble has it, and so on. You know, I practice, you know, in San Francisco and, and the Bay Area. We have an office in the city, and an office in L.A., and we have an office up here. And, and we do we do cases all over the country, but you know, only with lawyers that we know that bring us in, right? As special specialists. All righty. And your book has a website, actsofomission.com? It does. Okay. Yes. All right. We'll include that as well. 
Well, I was so looking forward to this conversation, and I so appreciate your taking the time. I know you're not feeling quite up to snuff today health-wise, but thank you for hanging in there with us and sharing you and your book with us, and I hope you keep us posted on the the movie. I will. I will. We'll, we'll go over the movie, and then we can go over the next uh, the next version. You know, it, it was supposed to be a trilogy when I wrote it, so maybe we'll have two more interactions. We'll see where the characters take you. Yes, we will. I'll be quite interested to see where they go. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks, it's James Bostwick. The title of the book is Acts of Omission and the book website, actsofomission.com. Jim, thank you. Thank you, Pat. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you very much.